Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. On Thursday the 6th of February, Patricia Dowd, a manager at a Silicon Valley chip company, was working from home. She was recovering from flu symptoms. But at 57, she was otherwise healthy. Her sudden death that day, two hours after emailing a colleague, mystified the medical examiner. It was five days before the disease that had already killed a thousand people in China was given a name, and it was another two months before Santa Clara County health officials could confirm Patricia Dowd was the first person known to have died from COVID-19 in America. Now the disease has killed 100,000 Americans. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how well has America responded to COVID-19? As the country passes a grim milestone in the progress of the pandemic, Delays and errors in the federal response have pushed the president's critics into talk of America as a failed state. In this episode, we'll assess how America has done in comparison to the rest of the world in dealing with both the public health emergency and the economic crisis caused by the lockdown. We'll also ask what it could mean for the 2020 presidential race. As ever, I'm joined by Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and by John Fasman, The Washington Correspondent. How are you both doing? Lockdown's coming to an end. Freedom is around the corner. So Connecticut is just opening up. There are some restaurants that are open, and over Memorial Day weekend, we were out in parks, which were packed. People are eager to get out in public. Up here, people are still masked up. There's still social distancing, but there are a lot more people out and about than I expected to see. I think where I am will be the absolute last place in America to come out of lockdown. And Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, doesn't seem to have much of a plan for what coming out of lockdown will look like. So June will be an interesting month. Okay. Well, I thought that given we've been talking about things other than COVID-19 for the past month or so, now that America has passed this awful milestone of 100,000 deaths, it was a good time to take stock of what's happened and also to look forward and think about how this is going to go as the country reopens before the virus is, is fully under control. To get us started, let's hear from Idris Kaloun. He's The Economist's US policy correspondent, and he's written an in-depth briefing for this week's paper on where we stand on the pandemic. You may have heard him on our daily podcast, The Intelligence, this week. It's worth a listen if you missed it. I asked Idris to go a bit deeper into the numbers for us. The best data that we have to compare how countries are doing against one another is through the number of reported deaths. And if you try to compare America to countries in, in Western Europe, what you find is that so far, the number of people who have died in America, if you adjust for population, are about the same as have died in the European Union. Some of the places that have been worse affected in Europe like France and Italy, even Britain, uh, have done substantially worse so far than America has. So compared to them, it's about middle of the pack. If you compare to countries that clearly had an involved uh, response 
place like South Korea, a place even like Germany, America doesn't look nearly as good. Of course, America is a big country, and in absolute terms, it still leads in terms of uh, in terms of the number of people who have died. So at the moment, the country is reopening. Those parts of the country that have had lockdowns are easing them. DC, where you are, which has been badly hit, the stay-at-home order is going to lapse quite soon, all being well. Does the country have a roadmap for how to open up without risking new major outbreaks? There isn't really a national plan, even though the experience from other countries that have emerged from lockdown, if you look at a place like South Korea or a place like Germany, places that had good responses, even China, you see that, that there are um, secondary uh, infections that have to be controlled, that have to be monitored. And in America, it's quite heterogeneous in terms of how states are able to do that. Some states have done a pretty good job of getting the infrastructure in place. Some have not. In all cases, experts think that America might be opening a bit prematurely. One difference between the American and the European experience is that America still has a high level of, of infection and a high level of deaths. Yesterday, 1,500 deaths were reported in America. Only 300 or so were reported in the European Union as a whole, which has more people. Roughly 20,000 new cases are being detected every day in America. And obviously, when you have more people who are infected, more people who are being hospitalized, that means that there are more people who could be transmitting the virus to, to one another, right? And so America and Europe are kind of coming out of this at the same time. And I think that the big difference is there's still a reasonably high level of infection in America, and it's growing in some places like Alabama and Mississippi that hadn't uh, really experienced it before. Finally, Idris, you've written the cover briefing in this week's Economist, four pages in this week's issue. What's one thing you heard in all your reporting that went into that piece of work that will stay with you? The thing that I think about still is the sense that the lockdown might not have been as successful as we thought, that the infrastructure that needed to be put into place to deal with the virus didn't really materialize, and the country took this enormous economic hit, ostensibly for the public health benefits of not having to do this again. And it might have been done not well enough so that you end up needing a secondary kind of lockdown. That is somewhat pessimistic, but it is something that I, I think about a lot. The virus is, is not at all over in America. And I think that that's something that can be missed given that the country's reopening and people are understandably happy about that. Charlotte, there's a sense in America, or at least in half of America, I think, that the country's been uniquely hard hit by COVID-19. And certainly, if you look at the headline numbers, the 100,000 deaths, it is the country with the most fatalities. But it looks very different when you adjust it, when you adjust the death rate for population. And, and there, you know, America's pretty much in the middle of the pack if you compare it with Western European countries, as Idris said. That's undoubtedly true. I do think, though, that it's worth considering at least two factors. One is that America is so much less dense than Britain, where you're situated. You think about these vast expanses of states that have very little population density. That means that transmission would be slowed in those places. And then second, America was a bit behind in terms of when the virus materialized. And so America actually had more time to prepare. And if you think about the wealth of the American government the low density of America's population and the extra time that America had ostensibly to prepare for the virus coming, I don't think that people should view the 
United States being middle of the pack in terms of mortality rate per person as a particular victory. To me, it seems, yes, not as bad, but still pretty awful. I think we could also look at how many deaths could have been prevented by an early response, both an early federal response in which the Defense Production Act was harnessed when it should have been, and in a more effective response in New York, which was really the locus of the virus. You saw Bill de Blasio very slow to shut the city down. You saw Andrew Cuomo putting patients with COVID into nursing homes, which seemed to increase the number of deaths. So it's true that on a per capita comparison with other countries, America hasn't done as badly, but it could have done much better. Yeah, I think it makes more sense in a way to think of America suffering from you know numerous outbreaks. And rather than comparing the US to individual European countries like France or Spain or the UK, to really compare continents. And you know, New York, the epidemic there looks like the epidemic in Northern Italy or in London or in Paris, you know, other dense places. On the West Coast, by contrast, you know, California has a death rate that's roughly equal to Germany's, which is seen to have done uh, you know, a very good job handling COVID, despite the fact that California had some very early cases. So this does seem to be an area where, you know, different decisions made by mayors and made by state governors um, at different times seem to have had quite a big impact on this. That said, you know, to Charlotte's point about density, it almost seems like this virus doesn't care a whole lot for the plans of politicians. I mean, if you look at the places where it's killed most, it has been sort of very dense, globally connected cities. You know, that's true whether it's, you know, New York or, or Sao Paulo in Brazil, which is being hit really hard at the moment as well. And if you look at places where it's hit in less populous areas, those have also been determined by density. You know, there's a, the funeral in Daughtry County, Georgia, meatpacking plants across the Midwest, places that are less dense come off better. Charlotte, I think quite a lot of Americans look at the performance of the federal government during this crisis, and in particular, some of the things Donald Trump's been saying, look at the death toll and conclude that the one thing, i.e. a lackluster federal response, has kind of caused the second thing, the high death toll. Is that right? Evaluating Trump's performance on any issue is a little complicated because he very often gives a strong impression of incompetence. And then sometimes he's also substantively incompetent. So there is this thing where he seems like a total wild card and says crazy things about suggesting people drink bleach and so forth. And the question is whether that has a knock-on effect in a substantive way in how he runs the executive branch. And I think that there is a degree to which, as Idris points out in this week's briefing, that Local government has compensated to some degree for a lack of leadership on the federal level. But I don't think we should let Donald Trump off the hook for a variety of reasons. I mean, just to start on the international stage, he, of course, has cut funds to world, the World Health Organization and actively undermined an international response that could have been coordinated. And then it's been an interesting crisis in which to see Trump's natural instinct, which is to pit different factions against each other, to see that at, at play, because presumably this is an opportunity where the federal government would marshal all of its resources in a very coordinated way to align with the efforts of different states. And instead, you saw him do what he often does, which is to, uh, to pit different people against one another. This was seen, for instance, when there were states who were jostling to get ventilators and PPE 
and a federal agency outbid Massachusetts for respirators. There's coordination that he could have assisted with for federal agencies. He talks a lot about cutting red tape and easing the functioning of federal government. He's not solely to blame, of course, but there is a huge void in leadership, both for coordinating the federal response and then aligning that federal response with the activity of states. Yeah, it's also baffling just sheerly as a political matter. I mean, he is going to be up for re-election in less than six months. There is a global pandemic. Whether he gets re-elected will depend in large part on whether people think he's presidential. The bar was so low for attempting to appear in charge, for attempting to appear ameliorative, for just every so often saying the sort of usual ameliorative things that a president would say to comfort people or at least give them the impression that he's on top of it. Instead, he seemed determined to accumulate authority while rejecting responsibility. It is a bizarre response from someone who at least nominally wants to get reelected. I don't know, John, though. I think that there's a chance that this could play well for him. It's very hard to anticipate how exactly things will be spun. And I certainly could see a world where he says that states didn't act early enough. He's right in New York. And as John Prito pointed out, that it was de Blasio as well as Cuomo, who's been hailed as a hero through this crisis. I mean, Cuomo didn't shut the state down early enough. So I think Trump can credibly point to Democrats not taking action either. And then, you know, there is this huge population of millions and millions of people. We saw, again, unemployment claims this week of over 2 million, which is down from what it was, but still an astonishing number of people who've lost their jobs. And I think that Trump can probably use this as a way to yet again point out that the establishment is working against the interests of working people and that he is on their side. Well, we'll talk a little bit later about the story the president may have to tell on the economy come November. But first, a reminder to people listening, if you're not an Economist subscriber already, you are missing out. This week's issue has Idris's briefing on COVID-19, John Fasman writing about cyber defence, Charlotte on oil, much more besides. To receive 12 issues for $12 or £12, head to economist.com slash pod2020. The link is in the show notes for this episode. As we've already mentioned, the response to COVID-19 in America out of necessity has been hyper-local. You know, decisions on whether to lock down or to open up have been left to state governors as they should be, to mayors, and even in some cases to county officials. Let's get a flavor of how this is playing out around America. Obviously, it's a really mixed picture. John Fasman, you've been speaking to city officials who've been trying to weigh those risks of reopening versus locking down. Yeah, you'll remember a couple of months ago, we spoke to the mayor of New Rochelle, New York, named Noam Bramson. New Rochelle was the first place in America to impose a lockdown amid an outbreak of the virus, and he was a man under some real pressure. I'm uh, surviving on uh, adrenaline, coffee, and M&Ms. <laughs> and, and how about the community? Um, as well as can be under the circumstances. I spoke to him again this week, and happily, things are looking much better. The number of active cases declines every day. It's a little over 100 right now, which is 100 too many, but a much smaller number than we experienced at the height of the virus's spread. In the former containment zone itself, there are actually zero active cases of COVID at the moment. 
which is um, a positive data point given how all this began. Obviously, we're pleased to have reached the milestones necessary to achieve a phase one reopening along with the entire Mid-Hudson region of New York. And I think having been one of the first communities in the country to face this illness, we take special satisfaction in the strength and the wisdom and the responsibility that was required to get us here. And we're feeling cautiously optimistic. Mayor Bransom's optimism made me wonder how towns similar to New Rochelle might be faring in states where the virus arrived later. So I reached out to Joe Zimmerman, who's the mayor of Sugarland, Texas, which is a suburb of America's most interesting city, which is, of course, Houston. But we're very much our own community. I mean, we are a, I call it one community, many cultures. He told me people there are managing to maintain social distancing while they go about their business amid something resembling normality, starting with grocery stores. 95% of what I've seen when I've been there, people are wearing masks. Some people are wearing gloves. They're sanitizing grocery carts when you're in uh, Home Depot. I've seen uh, most people in Home Depot, even though the aisles are still the same, they're social distancing and they're wearing masks. Uh, restaurants the same. Of course, the restaurants are reconfigured now to be at about 50% of occupancy. But all the waiters, waitresses wearing gloves, wearing masks. Of course, in a restaurant, since you're going to eat, most people at the tables are not wearing masks, but the tables are spaced far enough apart that I don't think there should be a concern about catching anything. Governor Abbott opened Texas fairly early. Lots of people, especially in the Northeast, where COVID hit particularly hard, thought that seemed a bit rash. Looking back on his decisions, do you think they were appropriate? How do you think he handled the reopening? I think they were very appropriate, and here's why. When you look at the original concern with COVID-19 was if we began to see a large number of people that were getting sick and needed to be hospitalized, would we have capacity in the hospitals? And all along, we've had capacity in, in Sugarland. We have a number of hospitals, Houston Methodist, Memorial Hermann. We've got St. Luke's. We've got a number of emergency care facilities. And we, we being the city of Sugarland in our emergency operations center, is in constant contact so that we know what bed capacity we have should somebody need to be hospitalized. And in all cases, John, I don't think even in the, in the city of Houston, where they've had a greater number, I don't think they've gotten anywhere near above 15% of using the beds that are available. So that tells me it's the right decision. Mr. Zimmerman says he's ready to shut down the city again if there's a spike in new cases. In the meantime, he's keeping a close eye on things. My wife and I drive the city almost every weekend. And it consists of going around to different restaurants every weekend, Sometimes we go in, sometimes I go in. I know most of the businesses around here. It's kind of a, just a check-in. We've reached out to most of our businesses. We have a dialogue going on with our businesses. We've asked them, what do you need? How can we help you, you know, coping with this? Most of them have come back and said, we don't need monetary assistance. We need access to personal protective equipment, sanitizer, gloves, masks, and we've been able to help them with that. What he said echoed what I had heard from Mayor Bransom of New Rochelle. I asked him what he'd say to another mayor having to deal with a new outbreak of the virus. Communicate openly, often, and transparently. 
acknowledge in an honest fashion what you know and what you don't know. Give residents and businesses the tools they need to make sound judgments uh, for themselves and support each other. Given the amount of craziness that's been coming out of the White House recently, I find it deeply reassuring, John, to reflect on the fact that it's mayors like these very sensible, level-headed people who actually get to make the decisions in America on when a lockdown eases and when it's necessary to shut down businesses again. It was also particularly nice to hear from Joe Zimmerman in Sugarland. I, I, like you, share an obsession with Houston. And, and Sugarland, I think, is one of the most fascinating bits of Houston. It's about the most diverse place in America and therefore on the planet. I think that's absolutely right. And I'm especially glad, since you're the one who approves my stories, that you share my affinity for Houston. I'm going to go early and often. One thing that both of them said that I was struck by is they both mentioned the importance of density in how the virus spreads. Mayor Branson said that the initial sort of spread was in a, I believe, in a housing project and that the spread had a lot to do with land use and density. When I asked Mayor Zimmerman why he thought that Houston and Sugarland had not been as hard hit as a lot of northeastern cities, he said that Houston is just a more sprawling, broader place. So that seems to me in much of America, that is a natural defense against the spread of the virus. So you have seen outbreaks in New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, very dense public transport focused places, Detroit as well, where the bus system is really important, where you've seen outbreaks in the rest of America, it is usually linked to discrete events, whether that is a funeral, whether that is a meatpacking plant, whether that's a you know choir practice, but it is less linked to sort of how people live their lives daily than it is in, in the Northeast and in a lot of European cities. Listening to those mayors, it is interesting to think about the nature of leadership in a crisis, because as I was alluding to earlier with Trump, there is a degree to which leaders have a very substantive role in terms of keeping the public up to date, as well as deciding what criteria they will follow to reopen the state. Um, and then there's the, the the sort of mushier quality, which is just about projecting clear confidence and giving citizens the idea that someone who is sensible is overseeing this whole mess. And in New York, I'm just struck by, of course, there's de Blasio, who in a very different way than Trump, but in a similar fashion, does not inspire confidence famously at the beginning of the pandemic, March 16th, which is a remarkable date. Um, de Blasio was going to his gym and his press person in response to questions about it said, you know, the YMCA has been a huge part of his family's life and the mayor wants to visit a place that keeps him grounded one last time. I'm not making that up. And Cuomo has been much better in terms of the qualities of projecting leadership and calm and competence. But you still see this bickering between the two of them. Cuomo had criteria for reopening. De Blasio added additional criteria for reopening the city, which is his prerogative, but then he loosened them because the earlier standards would have been too difficult to meet. And June, as I alluded to, is going to be really fascinating to see how these phases progress. New York City, probably both the mayor and governor, at least agree, will probably open sometime the first half of June. But there will be different phases, of course, to that reopening and the degree to which the mayor and governor can oversee that in an orderly fashion will be interesting, to say the least. Yeah, the soap opera of contempt between de Blasio and Cuomo has been one of the more sort of 
entertaining subplots of this whole thing. And it contrasts, as long as we're going to give them a kicking, I feel like we should recognize by name Gavin Newsom and London Breed, the governor of California and mayor of San Francisco, who have done quite well and appear to have avoided any sort of minor contempt and brouhaha the way that de Blasio and Cuomo have gotten caught up in. I'm also just struck by the degree to which local officials in America are empowered to make these very important decisions, life and death decisions, really, and have the trust of their voters. I mean, generally, in America, as you guys know, people trust their local elected officials much more than they trust the federal government or or whoever happens to be in the White House at the time. And as America has confronted coronavirus, that's been a real real strength, I think. I mean, if you compare America with Brazil, where you have a president similarly enthusiastic about hydroxychloroquine, even more hostile to lockdowns. In fact, Jair Bolsonaro's addressed lockdown protesters personally. There, you don't have such strong local institutions. You don't have such strong local decision making. And it appears, certainly if you look at the the curve in Brazil at the moment, the curve of infections, and, and if you read this week's Economist, the report from Sao Paulo, it really looks like Bolsonaro is wreaking absolute havoc in Brazil at the moment. And I think that's because of the relative weakness of local mayors and state governors, you know, who don't have the same powers that they have in America. We'll be back to assess the federal response to the economic impact of COVID-19 in just a moment. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Despite the grim death toll, for most Americans, it will be the economic impact of COVID 19 that really hits home. Henry Kerr is The Economist's economics editor. I asked him to assess the response to the crisis so far. The statistic that most clearly illustrates how badly the US economy is doing comes from the labour market. If you look at uh, the last jobs market report we have for April, it showed as many jobs being destroyed as were created in almost the entirety of the last decade. It took the overall number of jobs back to the the number that were around at the start of 2011, which is pretty astonishing given the strong jobs growth we've had since then. In fact, if you now look at the proportion of people in their prime working years, 25 to 54-year-olds with jobs, almost a third of them do not have jobs at the moment. And the last time that was true uh, was back in the mid-1970s when about half of women in that age group didn't work. Uh, So we're really seeing extraordinary times in the labour market. We've also seen an extraordinary response from Congress and the Federal Reserve, haven't we? I mean, Congress not known for passing big pieces of bipartisan legislation acted by its own standards fairly quickly, as did the Fed. What do you think the most significant or successful interventions will prove to be? I think if I had to draw on one thing, it would be the emergency support for all those jobless people. Congress passed an emergency boost to unemployment insurance worth $600 a week for people without jobs. 
That's really extraordinary action that I think has been very significant, both economically and in the lives of the people who have, have lost their jobs as a result of the pandemic. According to one estimate by Goldman Sachs, about three quarters of jobless workers are getting more from the federal government than they earned previously in their jobs. So the government really has stepped in to replace or more than replace the lost incomes of workers during the pandemic. And Henry, despite those extensive interventions, the US unemployment rate is now very high, close to 15% and rising. To some extent, though this sounds harsh, that, that's a deliberate policy choice, isn't it? America's various branches of government have taken a view that it's better to get help sort of directly to people and to businesses rather than to try and protect jobs that may not be around when the country reopens. The more you think that economies are just in a temporary freeze and we're going to be able to go back to normal once this crisis is over, the better the European system looks, I think, because it's very simple for, for workers to go back to, their, back to their firms. They're still on payroll. The more you think that the economy is going to have to adjust coming out of this, the more sense it makes to follow the American model of, of supporting the worker more than you support the job during this crisis. And I think the longer it goes on, the more people are coming around to the view that the economy is not going to look the same after this crisis, that a lot of jobs that were viable before it won't be viable afterwards. And there may be permanent changes in what consumers want to buy, the amount they want to go out, how many deliveries they want. It's going to require changes in the labour market. And in, in that sense, the American approach might be better. That said, uh, we've written in The Economist, and I think it's true, that you won't get that kind of reallocation while people can receive such high amounts from the government. That's really going to dampen the incentive to go and find a new job. So the question for America is, how do you wind down that emergency support in a way that allows the economy to, to come back and allows labour markets to operate, but that doesn't expose people to too much suffering? And that's the really... Uh, difficult trade-off that, that is faced in terms of economic policy at the moment, I'd say. Finally, Henry, there's a big debate among economists in America about what the shape of the recovery in the US will look like. And that's hugely consequential for the presidential election in November. As you know, how the economy is doing is the kind of most important factor in determining generally whether a president gets re-elected or not. If the recovery is very sluggish, then President Trump's chances don't look so good in November. If the recovery is V-shaped, you could see the president going into his re-election bid with job creation, paradoxically increasing at rates that have seldom been seen in American history and, and GDP in terms of change increasing very rapidly. Where do you stand on that one? Do you think we'll have a V-shape or do you think it would be some other, some other form? I'm going to take an annoyingly middle ground position on this. I think it's entirely possible that by the second half of the year, you're seeing quite fast job growth and quite fast GDP growth because we're in such a hole now that once the bounce back starts, there's going to be such capacity to make up the losses that, that you could be on that uh, trajectory. However, the depth of the hole is such that it will take you a long time to get out of it, even if you're on that trajectory. If the question is, could we get back what we've lost uh, by the end of the year? I think that's very, very unlikely, because it would require the sort of labour market bounce back that's never been seen in history, and I don't think is really possible. 
If you look at what financial markets expect, they say that the economy is going to be in a somewhat depressed state for a while, that inflation is going to be uh, very low, for example, because so many people are out of work that wages won't be rising very, very fast. So I don't think the economic picture will seem at all comfortable by the end of the year in time for the election. That doesn't mean you won't have some quite big numbers that President Trump could point to and say the economy is doing well again. It's interesting. I was struck in Idris's piece this week explaining the scale of America's fiscal stimulus amounting to 14% of GDP. And interestingly, that's higher than the stimulus in most European countries, including the Nordic ones, which, as a colleague of mine, likes to refer to them as the goody-goody Scandies, who we think of as being very generous. And so I, I was really struck by that. But I do think that it also is worth keeping in mind some of the practical limitations of the aid. There have been issues in getting some of those unemployment benefits out the door to people, getting the cash out fast enough because state unemployment offices run on old software and don't have enough staff and so on. And then also because nutrition assistance programs haven't been scaled up to the same degree. And there was a recent survey that found that one in six young kids weren't eating enough because of their parents' loss of income. So yes, absolutely, this has been an historic stimulus that has had huge impact, but practical limitations do remain. You would have thought there's still a very high level of suffering in November, a lot of people out of work, that that would really nix Donald Trump's chances of re-election. But not, not everyone thinks that's the case, John. Not everyone does. This week, there's a piece in Politico in which Jason Furman, who chaired the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama, predicted a V-shaped rebound beginning next month and continuing through Election Day. And under that scenario, President Trump can credibly brag about creating more jobs per month than any president on history and higher GDP than anything on record. And that's an enviable record to run on. I'm kind of skeptical that it'll be quite that sharp a rebound. I think while there's a lot of pent-up demand and people will get back to work, there are a whole lot of specific small businesses that went under and won't be reopening. And so I think sort of getting everything started again will take longer than a lot of people hope it will. But it's still, if Furman's concern, Furman's prediction may be a concern for Democrats, but it would be a great thing for America. Well, we'll be talking about the precise impact of economic data on presidential elections in a future episode when we'll be talking about the Economist's election model with Elliot Morris and Dan Rosenheck of the data team. Before you both go, it's quiz time. The subject of this week's archive quiz is Woodrow Wilson, the last president to have faced a pandemic in America. The Economist's dispatch on the 1912 Democratic Convention is gushing about Wilson. It describes Wilson as, quote, a lover of books. The paper said he, quote, does not stoop to curry favour with the mob by violent abuse or low slang. What high-minded job did Wilson do before going into politics as governor of New Jersey? He was... Uh, he, he was Princeton. A professor at Princeton or the head of Princeton? Was he the head of Princeton? Yeah, he was the, I think he was the president of Princeton. Yeah. He was the president of Princeton. The paper was particularly impressed that Wilson's sense of dignity prevented him from showing up at the convention in Baltimore to canvass for the nomination in person. When journalists invaded his home after the victory, they found him reading a biography of which 19th century British prime minister? Absolutely no idea. I mean, I could just make up a name. I'm trying to think of which... 
<laughs> Disraeli? Was it Disraeli? I mean, it was zero clue. It was the other one. It was Gladstone. Ah. Having given you that rather softball question on Princeton, I think it was important to carry on the humiliation with a question <laughs> that no reasonable American would be able to answer. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Bye. Thank you. That's all from us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please spread the word and leave a review and a rating on your podcast app. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. And stay sane. See you for more Checks and Balance next week. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.